Economic inequality is now at the centre of public debate. Following the publication of Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century, there's been enormous media coverage and it's attracted the attention of world leaders. The United States President, Barack Obama, has described rising income inequality as the, to quote, the defining challenge of our time. Christine Lagarde, head of the IMF, has declared that reducing inequality is at the top of her agenda, seeing it as threatening the sustainability of the world economic system. But what the world leaders have not said is what they would do about it. There are repeated calls for equitable growth, but little clue given as to how that can be achieved. And that's why I've written a book entitled Inequality, What Can Be Done? In fact, there seems to be a climate of gloom and doom, a sense that little can in fact be done to reduce inequality. The most common adjective used to describe Piketty's view of the future is dystopian. Well, my aim here is to tell a more upbeat story. The key message of the book is that the present levels of inequality are not inevitable. We are not simply at the mercy of forces beyond our control. If we want to reduce inequality, and that of course is a, a big if, then there are steps that we can take. They're not necessarily easy and they have costs. We would have to discard economic and political orthodoxies. But there are concrete measures that can be taken if we're serious about tackling inequality. The proposals I make are radical, but I believe realistic. While I reject the gloom and doom scenario, I'm not seeking to go to the opposite extreme from dystopia to utopia. Rather, I'm concerned with a reduction in inequality below its current level. That is, with the direction of movement, not the ultimate destination. And my reading of the current uh, state of opinion is that many people feel that the present level of inequality is excessive, while having perhaps different views about how much they would like to see it reduced. And the book is directed at this uh, broad coalition, allowing the reader to choose how far they wish to go along the road suggested. Now, to make the discussion more concrete, what do I mean by economic inequality? It could refer to several different things. People may have in mind individual earnings. That is the gap between pay at the top and pay at the bottom. Others, in the, as in the debate about the standard of living, may have in mind household disposable income. These are different concepts and on the slide I've shown the stages in going from one to the other. Income is not only pay but also income from investments and from social transfers like child benefit. We have to add all of these up. Moreover, household income 
relates to the total for everyone who lives there. So a church minister may be low paid, but quite well off if married to an investment banker. And we have to take account of the differing needs of different types of family. As one of my colleagues used to say, if you have two children, then a penny bun costs fourpence, because his wife got one too. So what, in broad terms, is the story about household income inequality? To answer this, I'm going to show two graphs. The first shows the evolution of inequality in the United States, the country where rising income dispersion has perhaps been most highlighted. As in the book, I take a long-run view, in this case going back more than a hundred years, before even my 99-year-old uh, mother-in-law was born. And you can see from the series marked by the bold squares that one measure of overall inequality, the Gini coefficient, that summarises the extent of income differences between everyone in the population, a coefficient which ranges from zero when everyone has the same income to 100% when there is extreme inequality. From that graph at the top you can see two conclusions that underlie the analysis of this book. The first is that overall inequality in the United States today is some eight percentage points higher than it was in 1980. A generation or more ago, inequality was significantly lower than it is today. And the same is true in the United Kingdom, where the increase has been, if anything, larger by something like 10 percentage points. And this is a big increase. To put it in perspective, if we tried to use income tax to reduce the Gini coefficient by 10 percentage points, then we need to raise the basic rate of income tax by no less than 16 percentage points. And that would be a massive challenge to get through Congress or for the Chancellor of the Exchequer in this country to propose. The lower series in the graph shows what's happened at the top. The share of the top 1%, about which we often hear, has in the United States, despite the fact it dropped in the economic crisis, has more than doubled since 1980. We're back at the kind of levels that were found in the roaring 20s. Now it's the top, which I've shown here, that has received most attention following Piketty's book. But I'm also very much concerned with those at the other end of the scale. I'm concerned with those on low incomes. And here the record is more encouraging, at least in the United Kingdom, in that the poverty rate has fallen from its peak in 1990 to 2011. However, the fall for which credit must be given still leaves the poverty rate well above the level in the 1960s and 1970s, a level which at that time was regarded as profoundly shocking. That's the first conclusion. The second conclusion from the graph is that inequality 
is not always rising. As may be seen in the case of the United States, overall income inequality after the Second World War was some 10 percentage points lower than it had been in 1929. In the United Kingdom, the rise in inequality took place in the 1980s, but has not been continued. The fact there's been little change in the last 20 or so years. And in other OECD countries, there have been periods in the past when inequality was reduced, and not all of these were in wartime. This is particularly true in mainland Europe, where there was a sustained period of inequality reduction in the decades after the Second World War. For example, in the Netherlands, the Gini coefficient fell by more than eight percentage points between 1959 and 1985, and in Finland it fell by 11 percentage points, and there was a fall of nine in France and Italy. And coming to more recent times, in the years 2000, almost all Latin American countries have seen a reduction in income inequality. Albeit, of course, in the case of Latin America, starting from a high level, as we shall see when we compare inequality across countries, as I do in the next graph. The next graph shows data on inequality from the Luxembourg Income Study relating to the year 2010, and it shows countries ranging from Australia to Uruguay alphabetically, and from India to the United States in terms of income per head. You can see from this that the US and the UK are near the top of the international league table, unlike most OECD countries. If the UK were to reduce its inequality by 10 percentage points, then it would make the UK like the Netherlands, a country which, which we have much, in fact, in common. But it's clear nonetheless that income inequality is a problem not just for the UK or the US, and so my book is directed at the many countries today where inequality is regarded as a major challenge. This brings me to the economics of income distribution and the standard textbook story explaining rising inequality. Now, economists are often accused of being behind the curve, ignoring the way in which uh, the world is changing before our very eyes. But I think it's unfair in this case. Textbook writers have been very quick to include discussion of increased inequality. And you'll find in most introductory economics books a simple supply and demand explanation. Increased inequality is due to the demand for educated workers rising faster than the supply. Some 40 years ago, the Dutch economist Jan Tinbergen described a race, a race between education increasing the supply and technological change biased towards demanding more and more educated workers. Demand was growing faster, and as a result, the wage differential has widened. And today's story includes another factor shifting demand, which is globalization, which has seen the disappearance of many jobs for low-educated workers. 
Now this standard textbook story is accompanied by the policy prescription that is on the lips of most policy makers and commentators. We need, they say, to invest more in education and training. Now, I fully support such calls for investment in human capital. After spending a lifetime working in higher education, I could hardly do anything else. But education and training, important though they are, are only part of the story. And here I want to concentrate on the other parts of the story. So the first way in which it's only part of the story is that these drivers of technological change and globalisation are not exogenous forces outside our control. We're not powerless in the face of events. Most technological advance reflects decisions that are made by research managers, by investors, by businessmen, by governments and by consumers. The degree of bias in this technological change, whether it's in favour of skilled rather than unskilled workers or whether it's in favour of capital rather than labour, it depends on the decisions that are made. For example, a firm may decide that it needs to invest in robots to supply goods from its warehouse and in developing delivery by drones. But this raises the question as to whether we should leave these decisions purely to the market. My answer to that is no, since the decisions of firms all too often neglect the interests of stakeholders apart from their shareholders and ignore the distributional consequences of different forms of technological change. And one can see why. If firms could operate purely with robots, then they would not have to rely on a labour force that wants to be properly treated and paid a living wage. One of my proposals is therefore that the direction of technical change should be a matter in which the government takes an active interest. After all, it is the government that has funded much of the underlying research. Many of the breakthroughs that underlie modern technology, such as, for example, smartphones, came from research supported by government bodies. For example, one of the inventors of the touch screen, a fundamental piece of this technology, worked at the Royal Radar Establishment in Britain, a government body. The second reason why the textbook account is only part of the story is that there are other important elements that go to make up household incomes. Looking back for a moment at the household income slide, we need to consider not just the one mechanism that circled. We have to look at the other elements shown there, and these other elements structure the proposals that I make in the book. There are in fact 15 proposals, and I cannot describe obviously each of them in detail, so I will list them in groups related to the underlying mechanisms listed on the slide as one, two and three, and pick out some of the proposals for more comment. Now I begin at the bottom of the slide with the welfare state and taxation. One of the factors contributing to the reduction in inequality in post-war decades in 
Britain and other OECD countries, was the existence of a progressive income tax system and the expansion of the post-war welfare state. But since 1980, there has been an unwinding of redistributive policies with adverse distributional consequences. The OECD Secretary General, in the report that he produced in 2011 called Divided We Stand, spelled out that from the mid-1990s, the reduced redistributive capacity of tax benefit systems was sometimes the main source of widening household income gaps. Part of what is needed, therefore, to reduce inequality is to undo the post-1980 scaling back of the redistributive state. This, in turn, involves raising taxes, which is obviously not easy. But in this slide, I've suggested a set of tax measures addressed towards reducing inequality. The first is a return to progressive income taxation in the sense that marginal rates of income tax would rise with the level of income. So there would be a suggested top marginal rate of 65% compared to the present 45% in the UK and approximately 40% of the federal income tax in the US. So it would represent a partial, but only a, a partial, return to the rates of income tax that were in operation for much of the 20th century. The second proposal is for a major reform of wealth transfer taxation. Not, I should say, to abolish it, but rather to convert it from a tax based on the amount left to a one based on the amount received. By taxing people on the amount they received over their lives in bequests and gifts, it would become a lifetime capital receipts tax. And this would underline the fact that the tax is a levy on inherited advantage, and that it would only be paid where that advantage was concentrated. In fact, it would be quite open to a donor to reduce the tax paid by dividing his or her estate and sharing it out more widely. Now, this, I should say, is far from a, a new idea it was proposed in the 19th century by John Stuart Mill, a philosopher who was much concerned with individual liberty. He saw liberty as being, to quote, underpinned by the diffusion rather than the concentration of wealth. The third tax proposal is to convert the UK council tax into a property tax, levied as a percentage of the market value of the property. This is a, a peculiarly British issue, but I believe it is of wider significance since it illustrates how quite large shifts in tax policy can be brought about. For this, a bit of history is needed. For, for many years, local government in the United Kingdom was financed, as far as households are concerned, from domestic rates that were related to property values or on an ability to pay basis. 
Then in the 1980s, the Conservative government decided to replace this system with a radically different flat rate charge, which became popularly known as the poll tax. And they justified this on the grounds that the benefit from local services was broadly proportional to the number of people. In other words, the basis for taxation was shifted from taxing according to ability to pay to taxing according to benefit. But this was highly regressive and the tax provoked widespread opposition. Indeed, there was riots in the streets. In time, the Prime Minister resigned and her successor announced that the poll tax would be abandoned and replaced by the council tax that we now have. And everyone breathed a sigh of relief. However, the council tax is still highly regressive. Houses at the start of the top band are worth nearly five times as much as those in the middle, but they're only taxed as twice as much. Now, the poll tax has been described as a colossal blunder, but in fact, in terms of conservative tax policy, it was a great success. The final outcome was a shift in the underlying principle of local taxation from one based on ability to pay to one based on benefit. And what I'm proposing is that we should reverse this shift, which may sound radical, but of course, taxing according to the value of property is precisely what most local governments in the United States do. What, though, about the spending side? First, I argue for a substantial cash child benefit paid with respect to for all children. It should be paid to all families, but targeted by making it taxable. And here there is a, a complementarity with the, the reform proposed to the income tax in that the increasing marginal rates of tax would mean that a basic rate taxpayer will get 80% of the benefit, but a top taxpayer only 35%. Now, child benefit is a, a basic income for children. And this brings me to a more radical proposal for adult social security, which is my version of a citizen's income where I would base eligibility not on citizenship, which I actually think is unworkable, but on participation in the society, where participation would be defined much broader, more broadly than simply employment. Everyone who participates in society would receive a basic income called a participation income, just as everyone receives a personal tax allowance. The difference is that the value of an income tax allowance depends on your income. If you're in the United Kingdom and in the first part of the 40% band, then it's worth £82 a week. But if you're in the lower rate band, it's worth half of this. And if your income is below the tax threshold, then it's worth still less. So what the participation income would do is to replace this by an equal cash amount. Everyone will get the same benefit. Once again, this sounds perhaps like a heretical idea, but it has found support in the past in the United States from Nobel Prize winners with very differing views, 
Milton Friedman on the right and James Tobin on the left. But reducing inequality is not just a matter of taxes and spending. Nearly half of the proposals that I make are concerned with the market distribution of income. And in fact, one of the key messages is that it's not feasible to achieve a 10 percentage point reduction in overall inequality simply by taxes and spending. One might get halfway, but the other half needs action on earnings and capital income. We cannot be intensely relaxed about what the market throws up in terms of rewards. This means, first of all, tackling, tackling unemployment. And to me it's astonishing that this subject is so missing from the public debate in Europe. Many years ago, in the 1979 general election in the United Kingdom, the election slogan of the Conservatives, one of the most successful pieces of political advertising, said that Labour isn't working. This is why I've included this graph, to remind you that there was a time in the post-war era when unemployment in the United Kingdom was around 1%. At that time, unemployment in the United States was much higher, which was one of the reasons why President Kennedy defeated Richard Nixon in 1960. But since the 1970s, there has been convergence in the wrong direction. Europe now has unemployment as high or quite possibly higher than in the United States. So the first proposal that I make under this heading is that the profile should be raised by establishing an explicit target for unemployment, just as we have official targets for inflation. But how would the ambition of reaching an unemployment target be realised? Here I believe we have to change the way we think about it. The measures taken in the past quarter century have failed to return us to the low levels of unemployment of the 1950s and 60s. Labour market reform, as advocated by the OECD, the IMF and other international bodies, has not been the solution. The power of trade unions has been greatly curtailed. The level and coverage of unemployment benefit has been severely reduced in many countries, but unemployment has remained high. There are a number of factors, but in my view, one reason is that attention has been focused almost exclusively on the supply of labour side rather than the demand for labour. And that's why in the book I devoted considerable time to discussing the demand side, but including particularly the role of technology. And to this I add, as you can see from the slide, the radical proposal that the government should act as an employer of last resort. After all, if banks are too important to fail, so too should be our citizens. Now jobs are part of the story. The level of pay is equally important, as is illustrated by the fact that uh, in the European Union, only half of the unemployed who find a job are earning sufficient in that job to raise them above the poverty line. There's a serious problem of in-work poverty, and that's why I endorse the proposals for increasing minimum wages, both in the UK 
and as there is a vigorous campaign to do so in the United States. But what about capital? Here I should draw a distinction between capital and wealth. Put simply, wealth is now much more evenly spread than it was, say, a hundred years ago. But this does not imply that there's been a corresponding spread of the control over economic decisions associated with capital. A person with a defined contribution pension fund is indirectly the beneficiary from the dividends paid by companies on the shares owned by that fund. But they have no say at all in the decisions made by those companies. That is why I spend some time in the book exploring the role of countervailing power in terms of rebalancing power among stakeholders. To this end, there are many steps that could be taken, including introducing distributional considerations into competition policy, ensuring that negotiations about issues such as TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, that these negotiations involve workers and consumers, as well as representatives of corporations, and examining whether the legislative balance has swung too far against trade unions. In terms of the ownership of wealth, much of the attention following Piketty's book has focused on taxing the rich. But I believe we should give as much attention to increasing the wealth of small savers. That's why I propose the reintroduction of index-linked bonds for small savers. And Piketty talked about R, being the rate of return, exceeding G, the rate of growth. But for many small savers, R has in fact been less than G, particularly in recent years. And the proposal for index-linked bonds guaranteeing at least G would do much to help accumulation by small savers, a step that should find support from the right as well as the left of the political spectrum. Equally, there may be support, wide-ranging support, for the proposal that the revenue from the wealth transfer tax that I discussed a few minutes ago should be used to fund a minimum inheritance for all on reaching the age of 18. After all, there's nothing wrong with inheritance as such. The problem is that many inherit very little and some inherit a great deal. Then there is the proposal for a sovereign wealth fund, which focuses on an aspect of the national finances that receives little attention in today's public debate. And it always seems to me absurd that we talk only about the national debt without considering what the state owns. It's a bit like saying to someone, oh, you've got a large mortgage, while ignoring the fact that they also own a large house. So I propose that we should be concerned with the overall asset position of the state, looking at both liabilities and assets. And the state assets should be brought together in a sovereign wealth fund and fiscal policy designed to build up state net worth. This is not I should emphasise nationalisation, but rather the acquisition of beneficial ownership, with the medium-term goal that the state would benefit from any rise in the share of profits 
that may result from macroeconomic developments. As it was neatly put by Laura Tyson in a recent debate about technological change, the implications of the increasing use of robots depends crucially on who owns the robots. If the state, which has after all paid for much of the development, gets a significant chunk of the profits, then the distributional outcome will be quite different. Now I've gone rapidly through the proposals and there's much to discuss. The uh, New Yorker said in its article last month that my proposals would not work in the US. But I do not in fact believe that they're off the wall. For example, in 1978, the US Congress passed the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment and Balanced Growth Act, which authorized the United States president to form a reservoir of public employment, as I'm proposing. Going back further in time, the Republican Senator Sherman moved his Antitrust Act in 1890 because he believed, to quote, that nothing was more threatening than the inequality of condition of wealth. And today in the United Kingdom there are conservative supporters for a sovereign wealth fund. And I should also note that the Premier League soccer clubs have signed up to a living wage. Of course, the slides are debatable. And on the final slide, I've sketched some of the objections and my responses. These are the subject of part three of the book. And the book concludes by asking about the way forward. I've tried in this talk and in the book to be optimistic. I've stressed the importance of looking back in time, but I do not believe we've returned to a world like that when Queen Victoria was alive. The citizens of OECD countries today enjoy a standard of living that is much higher than that of their great-grandparents. The achievement of a less unequal society in the decades following the Second World War has not been fully overthrown. At a global level, the great divergence between countries that followed the Industrial Revolution is closing. It is true that since 1980, we have seen an inequality turn and that the 21st century brings challenges that I've not discussed, such as population aging and climate change. But the solution to these problems lie in our own hands. If we are willing to use today's greater wealth to address these challenges and to accept that resources should be shared less unequally, there are indeed grounds for optimism.